0: Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode make sure to subscribe and check out the website learningwithlowell.com you'll see everything on there as well as the twitter and for the next 48 hours if you are listening to this live on july 30th you can nominate the podcast for an award and that will be in the show notes as well as well as the ability to leave a review all that information will be in the show notes so check them out learningwithloal.com other than that let's hear who we have joining us today Today we're joined with Bridget, molecular biologist and program manager. She, currently she works as a program manager for the Catalyst Fund and the Revive and Restore project. They are the people bringing back the moly mammoths, uh, ferrets, a bunch of stuff we get into their work in this episode along with a big sense of what Bridget, what Bridget enjoys. She was a senior lead scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton, post fellow at UCSD, science editor at Bioscience Writers. And a graduate student at Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Basically, she's a big science nerd. She knows a lot of science stuff. We're gonna get into science stuff today, and learn about what the Revive and Restore project and team are up to. She also worked at DARPA for a little bit, so you're gonna get a little bit of everything with this episode. So, kick back, relax, and let's start learning about Bridget and her work. You worked at with DARPA for a little bit. Um, you have a background in molecular biology and genetics. How did you? And now you work at Revive and Restore and the Catalyst Fund. How did you know that this is the type of thing that you wanted to be working on? Like, was there like some like moment as a kid that you were like seeing how things breed to make different traits? I grew up on a farm, so like I saw how mm-hmm. chick like if you bred a bunch of chickens together, you can make like giant chickens. So that's why I like yeah. genetics. But I don't know, uh, how did you find your way into this type of uh, uh, field? Well,
1: I mean, as a, as a kid, I liked a lot of things. It was not at all obvious to me that, um, that this is what I was gonna do. Well, um, I mean, it just didn't exist when I was a kid. But, um, yeah, I was just like science when I was a kid. And that was always my favorite subject in school. Um, but, you know, I didn't even have a major in college until my senior year. I had no idea what I wanted to do. A lot of people thought I did, should go to medical school because I was good at science, but I knew I, that was one thing I knew I didn't want <laughs> to be an MD. Um, so then one day I just decided, you know what? I like, I like genetics. Um, I like all my lab classes. I'm gonna look into maybe going into research. Uh, against a lot of advice, you know, can't make any money in research, you know, you're gonna spend your whole life working in a lab on some you know, narrow project for 30 years that won't work, and you know, um, and I'm like, you know what, I think I can make a living at this if I'm good at it, and and if not, who cares, well, at least I'll, I'll have a good time. So I joined a lab and um, decided ultimately to go to grad school, did that, uh, was on the academic track, gonna be a professor, um, went all through a postdoc after graduating uh, with my degree, that takes a really long time to become a professor, uh, mm. but I got to the last year of my postdoc, and I was getting you know job interviews for for faculty positions, and I just decided I don't actually want to be a professor. <laughs> I thought I did, but I changed my mind. Uh, I didn't actually really didn't want to teach, um, but I really liked being a scientist. Mm. Uh, and so um, the the contact contractor job um, that brought me to DARPA um, was kind of like a point where I had been studying for and training for this academic job that I thought I wanted for like, I don't know. At this point, I was like in my mid-thirties, and now what? You know, like so the DARPA thing um, it came it came out of just me wanting to find something else, and it just really kind of felt right. Mm-hmm. It, it sounded like exactly like what I liked about science. It had none of the parts I didn't like. Um, it was really fast paced um, and allowed me to think about projects that um, probably would never be funded in a traditional academic setting. Um, So that was a good time and um, I learned a lot about how to manage big R&D efforts and deal with large budgets and manage lots of labs at the same time. Um, And then after I'd been there for like, it was almost six years I think, uh, this Revive and Restore thing came up. Mm -hmm. And they were basically looking for someone who did exactly what I did for DARPA, but for this other big problem, right? Mm -hmm. DARPA's all about national security and the DOD. The lavatory store has this whole other thing that's completely unrelated. And something, like I never thought I could work in conservation, because I was again synthetic biology. Conservationists Mm -hmm. don't generally like synthetic biology or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was an opportunity to mix two things that I was interested in, in a way that I thought was impossible before. Mm -hmm. So I just decided, let's try that. And that's what, you know, that was only a couple months ago that I started. But here I am.
0: The, do you wish you would have made the tradition sooner? Like, are you really enjoying it or
1: I no, know, a couple not months not in? Yeah. No, I mean, I think I've used, I, you know, like I left academics, you know, kind of late in, in being trained. Um, you know, I, I didn't need to do like a six year postdoc if I wasn't going to be a professor. Yeah, everything that I learned as a postdoc and that experience um, I'm using now. Mm-hmm. So it, and none of it's wasted. Um, you know, i probably could have make more money faster if I had left academics. But, you know, it wasn't like I was starving. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I don't think any of, any of that was, was a waste of time.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Are you a fan of Leonardo da Vinci by chance?
1: Well, who isn't? I mean. I
0: don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, Michelangelo fans? I think they hated each other. Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. I don't do, think does, that,
1: does that division still exist amongst their fans?
2: I don't, like... I don't know.
0: I don't know that much about art. I, I read a book. Um, yeah. I'm going to reference something in a book, but the, the I'm reading Walter Isaacson's book on Leonardo da Vinci, and I mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not very good at appreciating art. Like I go to an art museum, and it just kind of all looks the same to me. I don't really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's making me appreciate it. But the, so I don't know if it still exists. I don't know. But maybe. But anyway, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think they did some pretty good stuff.
0: Yeah. They were pretty awesome. But the um so the, the the thing is that in the in this book it's uh it talks about how Leonardo da Vinci was uh like born out of wedlock, so made him a bastard. And mm-hmm. at that time that's not a good thing. Like, you know, you don't want to do that. And um and, and he had a different career track because he was born that way because he couldn't get the normal education as everyone else. And in a certain part of his life, you realized that it was actually a good thing. And he, and he would say, you know, thank God I was born this way because I, I I learned to think differently. And, you know, things that most people would consider a failure, you know, he saw the opportunity of. Is there, I'm not saying like anything that you've done, like, you know, not become a professor or anything like that as a failure. But is there a way that you found to take stuff that like doesn't work out how you think it would work and make them a positive? Or is it just really just a mind, like a way of thinking about it?
1: Uh, I don't know, I, I'm pretty, um, really, I really rely on my intuition to figure out what I should do or, or, you know, like the path that I should take usually seems obvious to me, um, even though I can't predict, you know, 10 years out, obviously, <laughs> I can't predict 10 years out where where I'm going to be, because uh, if that were the case, I would probably be a professor. Um when, when an opportunity that is right for me appears, I have no problem saying, "Oh, I know I thought I was going to do this before, but now I have new information and this looks better." Like mm. I, I have no regrets in, in, in transitioning um, mm. from one life plan to the other. Um, yeah. And I don't know why that I feel that way. It's just how I am. Like I, I'm not. I do it easily, and I don't look back, and it, it's fine. Um,
0: so you don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy? No. Yeah. No,
1: not at all. I, I, my life moves in one direction, and it's just, you know, I want to do things that are important to me. Uh, I want to have a, a, a positive impact on the world in some way. I mean, it doesn't have to be like, I i don't need to be famous or anything like that. I just want to do things that matter to me and feel good about what I do, spend my time doing and to enjoy it. And I want it to be challenging, but I don't want it to be impossible. And, um, and those are really the only criteria. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, I'm not likely to work outside of science only because I have no credentials (laughs) in that area. But if there was a non-scientific thing that met those criteria, then that would
2: be uh, open too. Is
0: there is there something that you've been wanting to do that you haven't? Like, is there like I don't know if you make um, like checklists of like looking into the Hmm. future. Though it seems more you just like like you said, you use your instincts to know. But is there anything that you've been that you've wanted to try out to see if you'd like it that you haven't in the science arenas?
1: Oh, well, specifically in science, um, or in
0: general. I mean, if you if you had a better idea,
1: and there are tons of things that I'm sure I could do and enjoy. Like it was never a matter of like this is the only thing I like. Um, it was one of many things that I, I think I could have done, and I just didn't want to be an MD. That was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it would be interesting to work at an intersection of um, design and biotech. I really haven't had that experience, and I know it's a huge part of getting things, you know, adopted by regular people, and, you know, if you want to put something into the real world, it has to work for for something, right? And there's, there's this whole design element that scientists don't even consider when they develop technology of somebody else, right? Um, so I would like to have that experience at some point. Um, I've also, interestingly, never worked in science for somebody who was trying to make a profit. Mm. I only spend money. I ne- <laughs> never tried to make it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I think it would be, that would be an interesting experience too. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You can make a t-shirt that says never turn to profit and then um, go around raising funds. I don't know how effective that would be. Um, Yeah. It'd be amusing.
1: I mean, I think it's a whole different mindset, you know, like uh, when, you know, when you're trying to decide whether or not like how to, how to solve problems um, the fact that we're not trying to make any money um, is different than if, if we were like a company that was trying to make a product. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, um, especially with these investors. Yeah. Especially with these issues, like, how do you, like, how do you even quantify to like make a return Like it's really hard?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's hard to make like wildlife conservation, uh, you know, commercially viable product. And there are, there are examples, I think that, um, of commercially, uh, valuable, um, conservation projects projects, like coral comes to mind, you know, your store coral, you know, it's good for tourism and, and a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to connect the economics to other things that are maybe indirectly related to um, the health of the environment, which obviously leads to the health of or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's hard to draw that line.
0: You could – has there been any work done on trying to, like, sell, like, a government program that the revive R&R R? &R? I don't know how to say it in in a quick session, but how R&R would – because if you if you could bring back the um, species, I think there was um, the wolves were brought back to Yosemite Park, and it, it Yellowstone.
2: helped.
0: Ye- Yellowstone, thank you. Yeah. And uh, it had like this huge ecological benefit, where like more trees could be grown, like the water was better because like the elk were just eating too much, and then like everything else kind of like falls out of balance. But there's like an economic value there. Um, I think there was uh, yeah. a study that came out that's like for every one dollar we put into parks, we get like something mm-hmm. like seven to ten dollars back. I don't remember. Don't, don't cite me on that but is there yeah. any value in, in that or is that something that people try or is this like strictly like nonprofit working to solve these problems for like the whole of humanity?
1: Well, I think, you know, those are really great examples. Um, and I think, you know, that's the kind of thing we can point to when we're talking to people and, and they're asking, you know, why should I, why should I invest in this? Or, you know, um, I think it's, it's hard to guarantee it. There's no like, when they put uh, the wolves back in Yellowstone, they knew it would be good to control the elk population, but everybody was surprised, I think, at at what an enormous effect Mm -hmm. it had on the whole ecosystem, like from the birds to the trees to the grass to the way the river flows. I mean, everything was affected. I think a lot of that was a surprise. Mm -hmm. and that's great you know that would happen. um but if you were going to say if you give me five million dollars today i can guarantee you a return of investment of this much in this much time it's never going to be like that right it's just there's too many things that we don't know and um it's probably safest just to say look we know biodiversity is a good thing and that this is going to improve the biodiversity and good things will come and you know but um that's not how investors work (laughs) i know I mean, it's not how they work for a for-profit situation. It's how they Mm -hmm. work in a, a, you know, charity situation.
0: So, is there, it's almost humbling. Um, I think sometimes people think that, like, the world's simple because, I don't know, like, they listen to the news and it's always just, like, negative things or whatever. And it kind of gives you this false sense, like, you know what the world, especially with the internet, like, I think people have this sense that, like, they know more than they know. Um, And then you see, like, the wolf situation where, like, all these other variables that no one had any idea. It's like, but it's extremely humbling. I think like how I think they, you know, it's like the food web and it's, you know, a lot of things are going extinct and we have like no idea the extent that that's going to affect us, or at least maybe I haven't read the research on how to the extent it's going to affect us. But I I, I think it's always really neat to like, Mm -hmm. when you have examples of, uh, of uh, like animals being reintroduced and like the, just the far reaching implications of it. But is there, is there an animal, is there an animal or project that you most want to see come into, come into being? Like if you could just like, you have a mm-hmm. blank check, it'll, you know, like the money's taken care of. You can do whatever you want. Uh, what would you want to do?
1: Uh, do you mean of the ones that we're looking at at Revive and Restore or just anything?
0: Anything. We're after this, I'll, I'll go to the Revive and Restore stuff.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, I I mean, I think it would just be awesome if, you know, we didn't have to go on a safari in Africa to see elephants and giraffes and things. There's a lot of large animals that used to live in the North American continent that are just not here anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, um, so there, there are some ideas that have been kicked around by wealthy and eccentric people of rewilding the Midwest. Have you heard about these? So they would bring back large fauna and including predators, we so you need to have the predators, to North America. Um, they would just basically translocate them from Africa and let them live here. And I think that would be really cool. And I know that the, you know there's a lot of problems that go along with that and that would need to be solved. I mean, all I have to do is look at the problems that Africans have with the large animals and you'd, <laughs> it's not hard to figure that out. But um, I think it would be great ecologically and I just think it would be really, you know, I think that's the way our environment is supposed to be. Um, and you know, not for anybody's fault who's alive today. if not so. Um, anyway, that's probably what I would do with a blank check. Mm.
0: The, I don't know what would they just be like mountain lions, mountain lions, bears, saber-toothed tigers. What are the other ones that would be brought oh, back? Well,
1: saber-toothed tigers are, are extinct, so that would be difficult. But um, they would just so there used to be an American version of a lot of things that live in Africa only now. So there were right. elephants, there were, you know, um, there there's the American lion, which apparently is very big, um, of uh, large herbivores. And so the theory goes that, you know, because they used to live here and it wasn't that long ago, you know, uh, evolutionarily speaking, the African version would be easy to adapt to our, our country and our climate.
0: Hmm. Kind of a... Um I don't know why I'm thinking of this, so I'm just gonna share it with you. And then, we'll <laughs> but uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who's uh, known for having all the national parks, he um mm-hmm. he went on an African safari, and he he killed like more animals in that safari than like some species have in existence today, like uh like lions and stuff. Like he just, mm-hmm. oh, it's a weird time. It's like the guy who cares yeah. so much about preservation went out and like, if he would do that today, he would wipe out a species because it's just like how prolific he was.
1: Yeah, but like conservation, like that kind of stuff, uh, was all started by hunters. There was, at one point, no difference between being an avid hunter and caring a lot about wildlife and the environment. And so like, you know, all the stuff that eventually became, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, things like that, that are protecting endangered species. At some point, we realized you can kill all of them. (laughs) And, And then people started, you know, taking pictures instead. But, you know. So if you read the history of of wildlife conservation and it's all these hunting clubs and stuff,
2: Hmm.
1: you know, um, yeah, I mean, I've been to Teddy Roosevelt's house. I grew up on Long Island. That's where his house is. And yeah, it's all like wall to wall stuffed animals. Everywhere. Hmm.
0: (laughs) Do you, uh, do you have a, like an intellectual idol, like Teddy Roosevelt that you like to read about?
2: Hmm.
1: I don't know what I do. I mean, like a single person that's like, I'm just, like, a huge fan of theirs. Um, yeah. I think it changes a lot. I mean, it just depends on what I'm into at the moment. And, um, yeah, it's hard, I would I'd say it's hard to, to pick one.
2: <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Who's your
1: idol? Um, I don't
0: know if you turn it back on me. the I'm have i I'm a big fan of Benjamin Franklin. I like that he went from an idiot to being, like, the reason the French came in. Um, uh-huh. like, if you read, like, Walter Isaacson's book on Benjamin Franklin when he was a kid, mm-hmm not when he was a kid, like when he was, uh, even up to my age, I'm 26, um, he was just kind of stupid in how he interacted with people. And it got him into a lot of problems. But he learned from it. And the way he learned from it, I think is really interesting. And uh, yeah. by the end of his life, he you know he was the, like the chief diplomat that like everyone else who came over to help like convince the French to do stuff. they were basically liabilities. And he just kept doing everything. Um, yeah. But I like him. Uh, Teddy Rose was awesome. I like the fact that he went from being like, really weak and sickly to uh being one of the most robust presidents and uh that's pretty cool um i don't know who else um i don't know i wish there was like a woman in there there's not a really a lot of really interesting books like that are written about well, women. people
1: don't write about women you've heard of that
0: <laughs> yeah i know there's mary Cl- mary mary cleary the woman who played with radiation and then died from it um mm-hmm. I don't know really anything that much about her, unfortunately. I try to keep things diverse. Like I like to learn about all peoples, but like so far, I've only read a lot of books about guys, which is unfortunate because like that leaves out fifty percent of the population.
1: Well, Madam Madam Carey, you know, she won two Nobel prizes, I believe, not just one.
0: Mm-hmm. There you go. See, I'm, I'm undervaluing her. I gotta double it. Mm-hmm. um But those are two. um There's ones that pop out. I read a lot. I I, I tend to read like nonfiction and stuff. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, are you a nonfiction reader as well?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I do read nonfiction. I also read fiction, but, um, yeah, I think I go back and forth. So when I took this job, I, I, I didn't come from a background in conservation. So I've read a lot of conservation books lately, actually for Christmas this year, I got like <laughs> probably 15 books from people who are like, here, I read up, <laughs> I read up on this stuff. Um, so that's why I know about like the history of the, the hunters and stuff like that. Cause I just read it. Um, but yeah, I mean, well written and it's an interesting subject or vaguely interesting subject. Yeah, nonfiction is full of things. It's just a matter of whether or not it reads like a textbook or if it's made to be a little bit more palatable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's some um, there's there's one book that's horrible. I it, it like pushed me to sleep. It's um it's called On War by um mm-hmm. I don't know, some like Prussian guy and it's like the most dry boring thing if i'm ever having a problem sleeping i just read like one page and i'm out um, so it has a benefit like it still lives on um, what was uh do you have any what was the last uh, good conservation book like one of the last ones that you read that you wouldn't mind sharing
1: um well let me see they're all back here <laughs> Uh. well how, how to clone a mammoth is a good one I don't know if i read this one yet. Uh, Nature's Ghosts is good. I thought that was pretty good. Um, And then there's one called Once and Future Giants. It's all about how the really large animals um, got wiped out by prehistoric people. Um, That was pretty interesting too. There's a pretty good reading list on the Revive and Restore website uh, about um, various conservation things that are relevant to what we do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the, so, the research one that I have up where they have like all the articles they've been in and people can download mm-hmm. them and like check them out, which will be in the yeah. links for everyone who's interested. But, um, oh, cool. yeah. So, uh, talking about your work. Um, so when you're, when you're at the Catalyst Fund, do you do any, so you're basically like reviewing applications to find like really good people that are working on stuff and you help them like make their programs or like, how would you describe what you do at Revive and Restore?
1: So we don't, um, we don't have like an open call for proposals, um, mm-hmm. uh, cause it's a pretty small pro like fund, um, relatively speaking. So it's not like you can just cold call us and, send, I mean, you can't, but <laughs> that's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly, um, my approach has been to look at the projects that, um, the other guys at Revive and Restore are developing and see what, what are the technological gaps that need to be solved in order to make those, those projects work. Um, and then I go and and, um, directly solicit proposals from people who I think can solve the problem mm. or, you know, sometimes I'll talk to a bunch of people and get some ideas and, um, so I, I work with the people who propose, you know, direct, pretty directly in developing the, the project. Um, so by the time I could, they get to send me a proposal, they know what I'm looking for. It's, mm-hmm. uh, uh it's just how it usually works. Sometimes, you know, people come to us and they say, you know, I have this great idea. And if it is like something that fits really well with what we were looking for, then, you know, we'll just take that project as is. But a lot of times it's the it's collaboration. Mm-hmm. And then once the project is developed um, and is awarded um, some funding, I will work with them um, to manage the project, make sure it stays on, on track. It's not, like a, it's not like a grant where we're just paying the you know, support their lab for some period of time. It's like very specific that like you have to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um and um, you know, if it's not working out, we can change it. But um it's not it's not a free for all.
2: <laughs>
1: so um so you know, I haven't we haven't done that very much yet because I just got started. Yeah. Um but um the stuff that we're putting on contract now since I started um I will be um, talking to the PIs of those projects, you know, regularly. <laughs> Mm-hmm. probably more often than
0: they'd like but um i think it's always good to keep in touch that I, I was working for this company that um i was working in like a community I'll, I'll try and censor what i especially based on what i'm saying i probably shouldn't say where, where i was working but the, um, <laughs> they had investors who they never talked to and then they mm-hmm. were gonna they were gonna do this uh raise in, in a little bit and so I, I talked to the investors like hey you know what how can we make it easier for you to like write us a check and they're like well you could talk to us more you know like <laughs> everyone else is uh yeah. everyone else is giving us updates but you guys are like really in the dark and it's like and i, and I just like kind of looked at her like why didn't you guys do this like i i always think it's like it's better to um you know it's it always like find the right cadence so you're not like bugging people but mm-hmm. I, I i do feel like people should talk more um but it yeah so you're coming oh, like
1: For us, I mean, uh, not only do I want to make sure that they're doing what they said they would do with the money we're giving them, but I'm always looking for the next step, right? So I want to set up the next thing so that when that project ends and it's successful, we know what to do with it, right? So if that's another, another phase of R&D, or if it's like transition to you know the field, and we need to make sure that somebody's ready to catch what they're developing, um, and I can't do that if I don't know how it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I need to be able to, um, I need. I just need to know what to expect. Yeah. So it's all built right into their contract, though. Like you will update us on these dates, and I don't care if you just call me and say, you know, everything's going to hell. That's fine. I just need to know so I can mm-hmm. stop telling people that it's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, though. Yeah. It's it it's good that yeah yeah I don't know that makes sense to me. I, I, hopefully, they're nice to you when they update you or when they will be updating you. Uh, they will. Good. <laughs> good. They should be nice to you, but um are you able to talk about uh, the projects you're working on now or should we like pick one that's in the past? I don't know what's like contractually you're able to talk about.
1: Uh, yeah. For for the ones that are on contract and yeah, there are, there are a few that we can talk about um, pretty openly uh, others that are more cagey because uh, you know, intellectual property and stuff like that. But um, so uh, we have a couple of projects that we're um, working on that have to do with the black footed chart. I, mm-hmm. Aware of the black-footed ferret, yeah, they're pretty cute. Uh, we split out to one of the. Uh, we had a big meeting about certs, uh in Colorado a couple weeks ago, and I met some. Um, you know, not directly because they're very mean, but I got to see where they're breeding them in Colorado. Um, so, you may have read that they're a really genetically depressed um, animal. Uh, the the gene pool is just very small, mm-hmm. and it's because they were they went down to such a few number. Um, I think back in the 80s, they had like 15 of them that they rounded up and put into a captive breeding program. And and they've been breeding them and releasing them to the wild, that's been going pretty well, but they don't have a lot of, I mean, they're all kind of closely related at this point. So um, we're working with the San Diego Zoo and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on this this idea that you could take um, samples that are stored in the zoo of ferrets that died long ago, but never contributed any genes to the current population. So they have different genes, and they could be like, uh, you know, adding an immigrant population to the current genetically depressed population just to kind of uh, increase diversity. But, you know, they died in the 80s, so uh, we have just these frozen cells, and what we're trying to do is see if we can clone those animals based on the tissue samples that we have to re- to bring them back, these pirates mm-hmm. that never um, never entered the breeding program. And, and then, you know, see if we can add more genetic diversity into the, the captive breeding program. So that's one of the things that we're looking into now. You know, and it's, it's a long project I and mean, we're doing like really proof concept, of concept stuff right now. Um, but you know, if it works, the next phase would be to actually bring back these ferrets. And then the next phase after that would be to make sure that they're not, um, yeah, make sure that they're functional, normal, and, um, would be good to use for breeding. So mm-hmm. oh, yeah, there's all these phases, but um, right now we're just trying to see if it'll, if it'll work. We also have ideas around um, plague resistance for the ferrets. So one of the things that they're really threatened with is uh, Yersinia pestis, which causes bubonic plague. You may be aware, um, but also takes out ferrets pretty easily too. <laughs> um, and it's just uh, been introduced from Asia. It's it's not a, a native part of their environment, and they have like zero resistance to it. So um, we're trying to develop genetic vaccines um, that will help stabilize the population and, and make them a little bit more immune to the plague.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so things like that. Um, so the parrots are are um, they're a pretty iconic endangered species for for this area of the world, um, and it's just exciting to see you know, how many people are involved in trying to restore them. It's like it's like Probably hundreds of people dedicate their lives to trying to bring these guys back. That's kind of cool.
2: Is it?
0: How long would it take if, like, if you were to like take an estimate from today and everything like works out, of course? Um, how long would it take for like the po- to get it to the point where like we we could start reintroducing and increasing the populations with diversity?
1: Uh, well, I mean, the gestation period for a ferret's only like forty-one days, so mm-hmm. it doesn't take a long time to make one. Um, I think they'd want to do a couple of generations of testing on them before they use them. Um, so I would say not less than five years, probably, you know, somewhere between five and 10. Hmm.
2: Well, if it was
0: like five years ago, would it take 10 years? Like is technology getting to the point where it's like reducing the time or are we still establishing the keystone technologies to make bring it, like what, what that project is doing mm-hmm. easier to happen?
1: Um, I think the technology is definitely helping to accelerate things. I think cloning in general um, is, has, you know, become more and more routine. Um, people use it for um, agricultural animals all the time now, and pets. Um, uh, the, the people we're working with uh, to do this project, you know, that's their bread and butter, is they, they bring back pets. Um, so yeah, I think you know technology is always always improving. Um, the gen- the genomics is really much more uh, affordable now than it would have been, you know, 10 years ago. So, you know, we can sequence all these animals and see which ones we want to, you know, which which ones have the most genetic diversity, which ones are going to give us the most thing for our buck, um, if we're talking just about increasing the size of the gene pool. Um, so that's definitely um, something that happens, you know, faster and cheaper today than it would have even a short time ago.
0: Yes, sir. Is there an amount that a population can fall to, if, if with like the advances in technology that we have today, and like bring it back? Like, there's only like five humans. Could we bring back the population? I use humans because like I people would probably be more motivated to do that. But like, how small can a population get, even with using our uh, current technology? Um, I guess as long as you have other DNA sources, then it, it doesn't really matter. As long as you have like a womb or something. But like, how small could they really get before like it's not possible?
1: Well, um, well, let's just take. Ferrets, for, for uh, an example. Let's not talk about humans, because it makes people nervous. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're, the method that I just described is based on you know us having a sample of, of living tissue, frozen but still alive, from two animals we'd like to clone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other way you can do it, though, is you just have uh, a sample of their DNA. And you would say, okay, we'll sequence the DNA. And we'll see which of which regions of their DNA are mo- are most unlike all the existing animals in the population. So you need sequences from all of the existing animals, and then sequences from the dead ones, where you have like, say, you have like a museum sample, like you know, from one of those displays where they're stuck, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you take a sample of their DNA. You could actually use gene editing technology now to edit those um, those so sequence differences into the existing cells of, of a, a modern animal, right? So you start with the cells from an, an existing, you know, genetically depressed animal, and you make changes at the, at the exact same space, uh, regions of the genome, so that it now matches the dead animal. And you've changed their genome to reflect what the gene sequence would have been, had that dead animal actually reproduced.
2: Hmm.
0: Pretty neat, but I think
1: that would take a lot longer than what we're doing. you know it's possible. Um, George Church's lab just published something that could make like uh, um, like 50,000 mutations in a single in a single cell in one round of uh, gene editing. So I mean it's, it's, it's getting to the point where these things are, are no longer just like theoretical, um, but it's still not as easy as what we're doing and it's definitely not as easy as just not letting them get to that point to begin with. <laughs>
0: yeah the the um that's true i i, I keep thinking of the, there's this like population of porpoises in um like where baja is it's like there's like that part of Ca- uh, california that goes down and then loops up into mexico it's like this little mm-hmm. like crux i don't know what that part is called but there's like a bunch there's only like 30 porpoises that live there um but for in terms of gen- i have like weird facts i'm sorry i have to share them else i can't think of anything else but the uh i, I feel like that's a dick but in terms of gene editing, are we just using CRISPR-Cas9, or is there other type of technologies that we're using to? well, not you guys are using
2: uh, to, to. Well,
1: CRISPR-Cas is you know that's the the latest craze now, um, but there's also Talens, for example. That was that's the gene editing technology that came before CRISPR. CRISPR is just um, it's really easy to design a new CRISPR um, editing tool relative to like a talon i don't know if you're familiar with either of those things but CRISPR is a matter of just typing out your sequence and sending out an order for for an rna that matches that sequence talons are designed like they're engineered proteins and so you gotta know what you're doing and they're a lot harder to make and they cost a lot more um but both of them will do the same thing so
2: So
1: i don't I don't know um, that anyone's going to use the older technology because CRISPR is so cheap to, and, and easy to do, and you can do it in a multiplex way, so it scales a lot better. Um, but you never know. Someone might come up with something better.
0: I <laughs> know mm-hmm. yeah, um, CRISPR was found kind of on accident. Like the, the Dr. Duadna person was um, – oh, I like her. I like her book. I found, I found one. Yeah. But uh, her book is awesome. She surfs. She's, uh, it's a really nice book. Um, she's not really nice just because she surfs, but I, I like that point. Um, but uh, yeah, actually, uh, just a quick tangent. Um, in the Einstein book, and 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 uh, by Walter Isaacson, and in the book by Dr. Dwadna, the there's like this aspect of science, scientists who do like art stuff as well, and it helps mm-hmm. them be better scientists. Do you do anything artistic?
1: Yeah, I, I used to be really into art. Um, I used to do a lot of drawing and painting. Um, lately, though, I'm into like more like building furniture and stuff like that. Um, like working with wood and tools and things like that. But I think it's just cause I don't work in a lab anymore and I miss working with my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, it, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap between what we do as scientists and what artists do. Like there's a very creative component to being a scientist that, um, kind of, it, it meshes well
2: mm-hmm. with, uh,
1: with artistic pursuits.
0: Yeah. Are you doing like Ron Swanson type woodworking? Familiar with Parks and
2: Rec? Uh,
1: um, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not that good.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm just Ooh.
1: learning. I don't have that many. Uh, my, my tools aren't that good.
0: That's all right. You'll you'll get there. Um, yeah. Using the scientific method, you can improve upon anything. Um,
1: yeah, it's
0: kind of the <laughs> uh, purpose of it. The um, what what today do you think is gonna be the longest to do? Like of the the black-footed ferret, the mm-hmm. heath hen, the horseshoe crab woolly mammoth the passenger pigeon i think there's a fifth one in there sixth one in there um Um, yeah which one are there
2: like i think
1: the mammoth will be probably the longest um mostly because of the gestation period of an elephant (laughs) uh and um i think there a lot a lot of those projects are similar in in that they're going to be a huge number of gene edits to make and you need an existing surrogate to, to grow the, the extinct animal or the restored animal however you want to call it
2: mm-hmm.
1: the extinct animal um but you know elephants we have a, a an additional layer of problems in that their closest living relative is an asian elephant and mm-hmm. asian elephants are endangered and so no one's going to use asian elephants to make mammoths they need to use asian elephants to make more asian elephants it's not really fair to say. We know you guys don't have enough of your own kind, <laughs> but <laughs> why don't you do this other thing first? Um, so I think you know we have to overcome the, that barrier. Um, and you know George Church, who runs that project, has ideas about how to do that. Um, but that's just another thing that he has to invent, right? So he's trying to come up with ways to to incubate a developing uh, embryo outside of a of a living womb that's so mm-hmm. sort of like an artificial womb kind of thing and you know there's no reason to think that it's impossible to do that but it's probably not going to be overnight and even once you have done it then um, you have to do it for an elephant-sized animal which is going to be challenging and then once you have one mammoth you know let's say it goes beautifully and you, you make one now you gotta make another one so that you can make more mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, just if I think about it that way, even and and um, even if we take for granted that everything is going to work 100%, that's still a very long project. Mm-hmm. Because
0: I feel like their name kind of asks for it, though, like the mammoth project. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's a pun. I I'm not very good at those. But I feel like that's kind of like on the borderline. Of yeah,
1: that, it's the size yeah. of the project as well. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, is are there good? Are there good? either documentaries or uh videos or um I, i'm thinking of i think his name's john stewart who does last week today who did an episode on CRISPR. but are, are there good mm-hmm. resources on um like that that you'd recommend that would be good on capturing what reviving is doing on the
1: mammoth project specifically or oh, oh in general.
0: general just yeah general.
1: oh yeah well the mammoth project they get a lot of attention from from books and, you know, the press and, you know, everyone wants to talk about the extinction. It's exciting, it's kind of cool. Um, so I know like 60 Minutes just did an episode on the Pleistocene Park, um, which is where the mammoths would go and live <laughs> if yeah, they were yeah. to exist again. Um, the Zamos,
2: right? The Zamos? But that
1: Yeah, the Xamos, yeah. Um, I think uh, Stewart Brand, our co- our our founder, just published an article. I can send it to you, um, all about you know this extinction, uh, mass extinction, that supposed to be. You know, everyone's um, been publishing about based on the the IUCN report about a billion species going extinct. Um, he had had a really good um, sort of opinion piece on the subject. Um, you should look at it if you haven't.
0: Um, I'll have to check that out.
1: Yeah, I, I mean lots of is written about this stuff. I would say the majority of it is written about the extinction because that's what really captures everybody's imagination. Um, So I would, I would, if I was going to direct you somewhere, I would say that, you know, pick up one of the many books about the mammoth project that's been written, or I think they're making one into a movie now. um, Yeah. Wooly. Wooly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: It it seems like a pretty good book. Uh, um, George said it was fairly accurate. I asked him um, when I interviewed him, like to what yeah. extent uh it was at because it was, seemed pretty dramatic um he was like yeah it's just a bit dramatic uh dramatis dr- Dramatic.
1: Dramatis. Um, yeah it's yeah. weird to read a, a fiction book where many of the characters are people you know mm-hmm. because it's like uh, i don't know it's just <laughs> i think if i were him i would i would think it's really a strange thing <laughs> to be mm-hmm. a fictional character <laughs> yeah.
0: but, um, well, well it'll it'll be like this generation's uh jurassic park but with, like you know a friendly ending um yeah. Jurassic Park does right. not have a, a positive ending um
1: no no it's a cautionary tale at least
0: yeah but um uh, and and um if if I wanted to go from where I'm at today knowing a bit about genetics and reading probably too much about CRISPR um how would I get to the point where I could do either uh de-extinction or help out with uh um, like the ferret project, for instance, like what would I need to learn to be like a scientist that actually works on that type of stuff in a technical way?
1: Um, so you want to be at the bench doing science, you mean?
0: Yeah. Well, I, well how many different areas? I, I just imagine everything happened in the, I, they're alive. So I guess some, some people have to take care of them when they're in the little cages.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah so we yeah. have, we have bench work. We have field work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We have computer work. Um, and then we have, you know, project managing work and we have, you know, uh public relations type stuff. You know, there's a lot of different levels you could be involved in uh, that would require you to know something about genetics. I would say if you were interested in doing hands-on bench work, um, the best way to start that would be probably to volunteer in a lab and develop some skills if you don't already have that um, doing experimental science. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need a particular degree, depending on how much you want to get paid to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you just were interested and had some time on your hands, that's one way you can do it. Um, but you know, as a uh, interviewer, and I don't know if this is your day job or not, um, you might consider, you know, the, the public relations side, you know, just getting the word out and and helping with the messaging and um, you know, just making sure that people are aware that this is happening. It's a really good thing, um, and it's really cool. And you know, that's another thing you could do. Mm-hmm. But you still need to know a lot about genetics, because you need to be able to explain it to people who don't know anything about genetics, which is even harder than talking to people who do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I love genetics. Um, genetics is fun. I uh, I have an anecdote. I'll save it for off camera. The um, the so I like that. Like you answered, kind of like the next question I have at the same time um, with answering this one, because I always wonder, you know, what are the technical ways that people can help out? And what are the non-technical ways? Because some people are going to, you know, be into the sciences. Some people are going to have, you know, public public relations type experience. And, you know, everyone needs to come together to help out. Are there ways, I know that, uh, Reverend Store has like a donation page, but are there, are there ways that, um, other than what you've stated a, a second ago, that people can get involved and be helpful? Um, even if it's just like sharing and reading and, uh, being active and participants, like that's a, you know like be educated uh uh vote your population is always good but um are there other good ways to actually be a part of the change that everyone wants to make versus just like i mean we don't do a
1: lot of work with volunteers or anything like that um but yeah i mean i say to be honest i think most people learn stuff from people they know these days or like their social uh, media kind of world that they live in their little bubble um so yeah i mean just you know, taking the time to explain it to, you know, people who, you know, aren't going to come across this in their own lives. Otherwise, um, it would be, you know, hugely helpful as long as you make sure, you know, that, um, that the message is, is coming across and not only halfway and, you know, but um I'm trying to think of, you know, we don't do a whole lot of like citizen scientist kind of stuff, Um just basically because you know, there's only five of us. And mm-hmm. those kind of efforts, you know, someone's gonna run them. But, you know, if if there were something they could think of that would be um maybe to, you know, bring a bunch of people who are just interested together to do something useful. Um, I I mean that would that would definitely be uh a way you could go.
0: Makes sense. The um is there something that you're but whenever I think about like how to talk to other people about genetics or anything like that, I always like frame it in the form of, of passion. Is there something that you're like really nerdily passionate, passionate about where like, if you get on the topic, like it's really hard to get you off of it.
1: Uh, I might be like most things. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask somebody else. Right? I don't, I don't know that people are aware that they, you know, they're, you know, they're totally nerding out while they're doing it. Um, mm, but
2: that's
1: true. yeah, I mean, I, I find myself, um, I find myself talking about the the benefits of using biology and like how, um, you know, one thing I, I like to stress is that, you know, we get the, the impression that the world is just in decline and all we're doing is measuring the decline and freaking out about it and there's nothing that can be done. I mean, I never take that world view. I think that there are so many cool, cool solutions to problems out there. So it's just a matter of, you know, funding them or doing them or whatever, but it, like I'm not at all one of those people who are hopeless about things. Like I'm like, yeah, we have like these great ideas. I'm really passionate about things like that are completely innovative. Like I don't know if you're aware of this organization that works with Adidas called Parley for the Ocean. Mm-hmm. So I partnered with Adidas to help get the ocean plastic out. And so mm-hmm. they got Adidas to develop this fabric that's made out of garbage plastic. And they have this whole line of sneakers now that's made out of ocean plastic. And they retail for like $200. They're taking like garbage and they're turning into a $200 product. Mm-hmm. I think they're just like amazing. Like, why aren't we all doing that? Like, that's just such a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this might be an example of uh, when I really get nerded out is, you know, when I see something like that, which is like obviously the world's gonna be okay because there's gonna be enough of these things that, um, are not just good for the environment. They're good for our, you know, capitalism. They're good for human standard of living, you know, like nobody loses in
2: that. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I was taught there's this guy named Tito who says he's from impossible labs. He's working on um, basically making money from climate change, which is kind of weird. Um, mm-hmm. weird. He he thinks that the I don't disagree with him, but I don't know why I phrased it as a way that it was incredulous. What I was about to state, but he thinks that the first trillionaire is probably going to be making um, like solving problems with climate change the though um another person I interviewed Molly Molly Morse which is a cool superhero name um which no one pointed out before me so I feel pretty proud about that but the, she's using um she's making a plastic that biodegrades in the ocean um which uh there was a really interesting point that came out in our in our interview where um she, like we make plastic that basically lasts forever which doesn't make sense when most of it I'm lasts garbage. like yeah. Use. yeah right like <laughs>
1: It' even it doesn't even have any economic value. Why would you make it last forever right? It's just yeah. they give it to you for free and then you throw it away
0: mm-hmm. It makes no sense but there's I think there's a lot of thinking like that where i I feel like it's probably better for businesses as well to make a biodegrade because then people will need it more. um It's right. kind of like the like that's why little, your
1: laptop dies every three years because they want you to buy another one, so they don't make it last
0: forever mine's on year six i I don't wow. want it to die, I don't yeah. want it to die. It's, it's so, it it's definitely going to die soon. I'm really sad about it. <laughs> it's like the first computer I ever had, but, um, are there, uh, other solutions that you're excited about or that you've been reading about that, um, you wouldn't mind sharing to like either like the issues that you, you see happening in the environment using biology means or just in general?
1: Yeah. I mean, the whole idea about pulling things like this trash to treasure kind of thing, uh, biology is perfect for that. Right. That's what organisms do, like they find a food source and they turn it into something that they need. And and because we can manipulate metabolism of microbes in particular, but you know, eventually plants and other things. I mean, we have the we have the toolkit now, I think, to say, Okay, this is what we have a lot of, that's not worth anything to us, what do we want to make with it? and it's just a matter of rearranging bombs and molecules, and we have enzymes and genes that encode those enzymes, and it's, it really is becoming more like a, a designer kind of thing, right, mm-hmm. and yeah, so I'm passionate about things that involve sort of metabolic engineering or synthetic biology, especially if they can do it in a really smart way, where um, where the organism is not just blindly churning something out but is it doing it in response to some cues that you can give it from the environment can it be made to be like programmed or smart it can have logic to it Um, Mm -hmm. because if you add that into it then i mean you can easily imagine drew Endy's version of the living house right where you know things are growing into patterns and stuff specified by the genetic code that somebody wrote for them and um so yeah i think that that whole um aspect of so this is where, you know, like I worked on the ELM programs, like these are very much the d- concepts that, you know, we started with, like how do you, um, how do you get structures from a, gen- from a genetic code, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so I get like really interested in all that kind of stuff, and uh, anything that has to do with like, you know, pulling methane out of the air to create, you know, something of use, you know, that kind of stuff, I think is gonna be the first substantiation of that. But, um, yeah, I think, I think we're going to be surprised at all the cool creative ideas that people come up with for manipulating metabolism that way. Mm-hmm.
2: The,
0: yeah, the, the, the lady I mentioned, she, uh, she does it through methane, like bacteria through yeah. methane. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, you probably already knew who she was, but, the, um, you
1: can, yeah, you can make like, uh, electricity from that. You can make, you know, materials, you can have those materials patterns and certain certain ways you know it's just it's crazy what you can do if you just kind of like think through what already exists and then tweak it
0: mm-hmm. makes sense the, um all right so i have a, a couple of like standard questions i ask at the end of an interview um mm-hmm. they're like my con- my control variables i suppose but the, um mm-hmm. so is there i'll start with the fun one the um what is a what is a question or problem i combined two of them sorry what is a question that you have you do not have the solution to or the answer to that you would like to have the answer to Um, maybe a listener can have the answer an example i give to let your mind think of it is um i wonder if like the big bang you know the big bang makes the universe so if like i like like destroy the big bang or stopped it before i can make the universe like what would be here instead, or like what would be here before the big bang i want to know these things I do not have that answer. What do you
1: imagine, like, like when you ask yourself that question? Are there, are you like thinking of? Do you have some concept of what that could be, or is it so like it's just something you can't even wrap, wrap your mind around? Like
0: the the physicist that I've asked this this question to had the best answer. I think it it's like it's hard to use logic that's that's derived from inside the universe to describe something that's not of the universe. So it's like trying to build blocks not of plastic in a world that only has plastic.
1: So he considers logic to be a property of this universe.
0: Well, at least my conception of logic or mm-hmm. our, our conception of math. logic. Yeah. Like how we that think
1: That That math isn't true outside of our universe.
0: I don't think so. At least that's what we were saying. He was in a... I need to like find the guy or lady who like knows the most on this and just talk to him about this. But it's something I wonder. I just imagine nothing which i imagine nothing happens it really disturbed me i thought about this when i was seven and i've never gotten the answer but like i was playing a video game and i thought i thought life was kind of like you'd respawn if you died and you don't and, and i like because there's like this is the only universe you get and it gave me a big existential crisis and so i've always wondered what would be here instead because is like the only universe you get i know there's like multiple universes that can potentially exist mm-hmm. but um this is really the only one it's kind of weird there's no like other universe that could exist. I, I try to explain this, and it doesn't make sense. But like I try to explain this to my girlfriend all the time, and it just freaks her out. But like the idea is that... She doesn't like talking about mor- uh, mortality, but um, like you can't get another universe. This is the only universe we have. But like what would be here if the universe wasn't allowed to exist? It's like ima- imagining what would be in the place of a tree if you didn't allow the tree to exist in an area that Nothing would exist. I don't know. It bugs me. I'm going to think about this later. Um, but yes, yeah, so right, you... I'll give
1: you one. I'll give you one of mine. So, you know, there. I think I, and I'm sure a lot of other people are under the impression that there are many examples of animals that are at least as intelligent as we are
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, dolphins, elephants, whales, um, oct- octopus. And it's obvious that an octopus, It's very different than we are. Their entire brain structure is completely foreign. They're like aliens, right? Mm -hmm. But they have an obviously very rich mind. They have a sense of humor, it seems. They they do incredible things, and they communicate with each other in such a bizarre way relative to us, with all changing of colors and, and everything. But I wonder if there were a way where you could map your consciousness or their consciousness in a way that you could... Get an inkling of what it's like to be them, and they, you, what that would do to our understanding, like would it just explode our understanding of, you know, the physical world, like how would we be different for that?
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That is interesting. It's similar to uh, a question I ask. I don't know. It's I don't think it's a question, but it's a similar idea that I ask. If, like you know, if like leonard da Vinci is like a superhuman and, and genius. And like every now and again, there's like someone who's like outside that like outlier of 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 that. Like, what would it what would it be like to be like the first cephalopod that like has sentience? And he looks like he or she looks around and is like, "I'm the only one." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it would be interesting. <laughs> I think
1: to, so I better make like a million children this year, and then they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, he just yeah they they'd have they wouldn't have a lot of time. They don't live very yeah. long. Um, not at all. I was working on an experiment to try and engineer uh, cuttlefish longevity, but then I told too many people, and then people said I couldn't do it. They thought I would eat. And that
1: was it? That was over?
0: Well, I got the feeling that they would report me for making cephalopods live longer. I don't know why. I'm not being mean to them, I would just, you know, play with their eggs. Um,
1: yeah, suddenly there's a cephalopod uh, explosion.
0: <laughs> well, if they, if they, I feel like if they live longer, they'd probably figure out like what's up, because like they can build structures, like they can change the like, the texture of their skin and stuff. Like they're like
2: uh-huh.
0: they really are the most alien thing. And so it's a good yeah. question that you ask. But um, so the, the the second question I ask people is, uh, what is a problem you have currently that you'd love help uh, solving? It's like oh, I don't
1: have problems. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> i have a pretty uh sweet life um what is the problem i have uh it's gonna sound silly cause this this is happening immediately but one of the outlets outside my backyard is not working and nobody can figure out why um that's a problem i'd like to talk but um i do want something more interesting than that i think um, i'm
0: sure there's an electrician nearby that could help you out
1: no he's here now actually
0: <laughs> okay well hopefully it'll be um, solved today
1: yeah, so that kind of stuff. But then I think uh, the thing that we really need to get on is this: we need to upgrade um, our policies around engineered organisms, like set. because our ability to engineer things is is now. Like we, it used to be like, oh, one day we're going to be able to do that. We should really think about how we're going to be able to regulate it, ethics, blah, blah, blah. That time is here. Like that's happened,
2: mm-hmm. and.
1: Right now, I, I can see that you know everything is just going to become slower and slower and slower because we're going to get to this point of wanting to do field trials of things and you know having real solutions to real problems, and not and nobody knows how to deal with that. There's like this, this network of you know regulation and law, and none of it makes any sense with respect to the current technology. So it needs to be updated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, I, I think that's a problem I'm high on my list of things that just need to be taken care of and it, it's ridiculous to me that we can't do that you know
2: because mm-hmm. we you know, invent these
1: things you know <laughs> these are human made things it's not like we're asking someone to you know develop some new kind of physics
0: mm-hmm. most one day i realized that most problems that exist are human made like yeah. like if i if i don't get into college um this is actually a real example um like most people think that the like it like it's hard to get into a college, and it's really not. Like you, if you get turned down, just like go talk to someone; they'll let you in. Like there's like mm-hmm. ways around things, but um, most I probably shouldn't advertise that. But the I don't know. There was this, this recent uh, interview thing, like the panel on like Facebook and like the leaks mm-hmm. and like how all the senators tried understanding what like Facebook was, and I yeah. feel like they did not do a good job uh, no. understanding what Facebook was. And so I feel like biology is like more complicated than Facebook. I feel like that's, you know, it's Facebook is complicated in other ways. Um, yeah. You, there'd be have to be like a really big education. I was, I feel like senators are almost like afraid to be educated. Like they don't want to admit like they learn. Like I don't know why there's like this somewhat um, like anti-intellectualism that goes on in that level, like that level of people. Well,
1: I think you know they're, they're we choose these people to represent us,
2: so. Yeah, the cephalopod overlords have. do yeah
0: <laughs> i'm sorry for interrupting <laughs> that's true we do choose it um unless unless the cephalopod overlords uh do it so the the last the last question i had uh this is not the last question I, I lied um i'm an unreliable narrator but so this goes back to like book or resource recommendations that you like i know you have a bunch mm-hmm. of books in the background my girlfriend's about to walk in so i'm going to give it five seconds hi amy this is Bridget. This will not be in the episode. <laughs> I didn't finish this. No. Then uh, I'll make you dinner. But um, that's Amy. She's nice. She only beats me on Tuesdays. Um, I probably shouldn't make that joke. I'm sorry. So the um, the are there good recommendations for in terms of books? Uh, you already gave a couple more uh, in the back, and you gave the one on the the one of the founders but are there books that you like the last couple of books that you've read that are good that are either are the, the fiction area, the nonfiction, that in general that you'd recommend people check out?
1: <laughs> I'm looking at the bookshelf because um, these are probably the ones I read most recently. Some of those like textbooks. Um, no, there are no textbooks here. Those are your first okay. games. I really like Sapiens. I don't know if you read that.
0: No, it's on my list. I'm actually going to contact that person to get them on the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was that was really well done, I think, um, and you know it's, it's written at exactly the right level for you know people who aren't anthropologists or, or scientists or or whatever, but I'm not dumbed down to the point where it's like a, a but I really enjoyed that. Um, Neil Gaiman's uh, Norse Myso- Norse Mythology was good, um, mm-hmm. but it's not. You know an original story of course um we just talked about octopuses i read a book called the soul of an octopus recently um Wait, who, who wrote that uh si montgomery i interviewed uh, her she's, okay.
0: awesome. Yeah, she's awesome
1: yeah well the book was really do- well done and now i know lots about octopuses which is why i brought that up um
0: i'll tell her i met someone who read her book as well it'll make okay, her day
1: cool.
0: <laughs> yeah and i'll say how smart you are she'll like it <laughs>
1: Um, Prisoners of Geography was interesting. Um, I don't know if you read that. Um, mm-hmm. it's by Tim Marshall. Marshall. Uh, it's all about um how the geographical boundaries or just the geography of a country uh dictates, you know, what they can and can't do, how big they can possibly be, how powerful, um the kinds of things they care about. Mm-hmm. Um but it's done in a very like uh, objective way and it's a if you ever wonder why why two countries are fighting over some rock in the ocean, if you read this book. It'll make
0: sense. Oh, sweet, I'm gonna check that out. The, yeah. A, a couple of recommendations for you then, because um, have you read Jean and and or *The Emperor of All Maladies*? I think you no, might my like. Mom's
1: always, my mom's always trying to get me to read that book about cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I've been I've gotten that recommendation about 200 times from her, but I will read it one day.
0: Have <laughs> you read Jean? I think you probably like it. You like genetics. You probably know yeah. everything in it, though.
1: Gene?
0: Yes, made by the sa- written by the same guy.
1: I oh, know, I haven't actually heard of that one.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's Gene, spelt normally, and uh, <laughs> it has a really colorful cover. Um, it's right. really good. Those are not selling yeah, points. I, I
1: have to say, I, I don't always, um, I don't often read books about genetics only because I feel like a lot of it—it it takes so much to explain it to a LA, lay audience that I get bored in that part. You know, like it's like okay, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll check it out.
0: Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to hear what you think, since you're actually. Much like understand the stuff more is I, I imagine it's the, in the same vein as uh, Sapiens, but um, mm-hmm. is there a good documentary you'd recommend? I don't know if you watch documentaries at all.
1: I do sometimes. I don't really remember what they're called, but um, I watched something recently that was interesting. I have to get back to you on that. Let's okay. Look at my Netflix. And see what's on there.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Um, all right, then. How? What are some good ways to Follow along with the R and R experience. I don't know why I asked that so stupidly. What's like this? Do you have any like? Uh, I think they have social media and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, well, we have a blog on our website, and we don't put up we don't update it often. Like we're not one of those groups that are just constantly throwing stuff out there. Um, every now and then, we'll say, you know, this is this is something that we either think is really interesting, or you know, like a, an award we gave out or something like that. We're a little behind them. Uh, we definitely have a Twitter account. Um, yeah, so those are probably the best ways to directly get information from us. Um, I don't know how much they put on Facebook, because I never look at Facebook, but um, do you, I do know they have a page.
0: Yeah, do you guys have a newsletter? We I
1: don't remember. Uh, I don't think we do. We have an annual report, but it doesn't get... I think that might get sent out on, on Twitter, but mm. um, I don't know if they have like an email, like where you can just sign up to get things sent directly to you. But I bet if we do, it's on our website.
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll do the sleuthing on this and have all the links. And in about 10 seconds, you will hear the links read to you in the post that exists in the future. And that was Bridget at Revival Restore. Check out their website, RevivalRestore.org, where you can see all their links and the amazing work they're doing. Great passion. The great passenger pigeon comeback, the genetic rescue of the black footed ferret, saving the horseshoe crab, etc., etc. It's all easily laid out there, including a the timeline of how their work is going to be in effect. So check it out. You're going to really like this type of stuff. you've heard of George Church, his Willie Mammoth, all that type of thing, you're going to want to learn more about this revival, restore project. And Bridget as well, she's awesome don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at Lowell Here, facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you